Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Tuesday and welcome into another episode of Reshoring. I'm Kaylee Dix here with Rosemary Coates from the Reshoring Institute. Rosemary, great to have you back again for another episode. Thank you. I'm glad to be here once again. We love being here with you guys on Tuesday, so thank you for continuously tuning in as well. We've got an interesting topic to break down today. We're talking about contract manufacturing and a little bit about how that relates to the reshoring picture from not just a manufacturing perspective, but also from a 3PL perspective. So let's go ahead and dig right into it. For contract manufacturing, what do we truly mean when we talk about that? Yeah, so I think it's a little bit misunderstood or or, um, a little difficult to understand. Um, Contract manufacturing, though, is when you uh, use a a manufacturer that is not your own. So you actually have a supplier that does manufacturing on your behalf. And there are lots of big manufacturers, contract manufacturers, such as um, J-Ball and Flex and Foxconn, uh, and there are thousands of smaller manufacturers and regional manufacturers around that will take your design and, and manufacture the product on your behalf. It's a, a growing industry for sure, and one that's uh, highly interesting, uh, particularly to companies that are reshoring. Context of reshoring, there's a lot of opportunity for things to go awry if you're using a contract manufacturer, right? You're adding now another step into this complex supply chain. You're adding the ability for your designs to be misinterpreted or maybe misappropriated in some in some cases. Can you talk a little bit about some of maybe the nefarious things that might happen if you choose to use a contract manufacturer? Sure. So um, as you know, Kaylee, I also do expert witness work, and I've been involved in a number of legal cases that involve contract manufacturers, disputes with contract manufacturers. There's all sorts of things that can go wrong. Um, you know, I would say mostly it's it's probably a, a pretty good way um, of executing manufacturing, but you also have to be aware and informed regarding how contract manufacturing works. So for example, um, a contract manufacturer will buy uh, parts and, and products that are going into your product assembly uh, and then control that inventory through typically through their, their ERP system. At the end of the contract though, they may have leftover parts that they've purchased on your behalf um, and additional inventory that's not going to be used. And so the question is, whose responsible responsibility is that? So you could, the contract manufacturer could be left with a million or $2 million worth of parts and components, and they're going to try to bill you for that if, you're, if you are the, um, the uh, company that outsourced to them. 
And so therein lies a dispute. I would say the vast majority of the pro uh, the cases that I've worked on involved inventory at the end of a project. Um, and so there's there's um, a compelling reason because of that to be very carefully monitoring your your contract manufacturers. So here's how the process works. Um, a contract manufacturer makes their services available so to multiple companies. So they typically manufacture for lots of different companies. And let's say you want to make a, a thousand of your particular product. And uh, so you contact the contract manufacturer and say, I want to make, I want you to manufacture for me a thousand of these products or 10,000 or a hundred thousand of these products. And you give them the designs and the instructions on how to manufacture the item uh, and uh, how many you're going to need. So you may tell them that, but um, don't confirm it. You don't confirm how many you're going to need. You just say, this is what we're, we think we're planning to order. So essentially, you're giving them a forecast. And based on that forecast, uh, the contract manufacturer will go out and procure all the parts. So if they don't have that forecast in writing, you haven't provided a purchase order or a written confirmation of the forecast. They're um, taking on some risk to go out and buy uh, parts that maybe you're never going to need. So along comes the, your, your um, orders and you decide you want that contract manufacturer to make only 9,000 of 10,000 of the parts. And meanwhile, they've already procured enough uh, parts and components for 10,000 products. So you have a discrepancy in how much they've uh, procured and how much they're going to use. So that's, that's one issue. There's also control issues. So, of course, uh, having control over the quality of an external factory, uh, how you communicate with them, you know, all these things are involved in um, good oversight, good supply chain oversight of contract manufacturing. It's a, it's a very, very popular idea right now, though. An awful lot of companies would prefer not to do their own manufacturing and instead farm it out to a contract manufacturer. So take let's take Apple as an example. Um, so you may know Apple make anything. Um, they design all the products in here in Silicon Valley where I live, uh, and then all of their manufacturing is outsourced. So they have um, big factories in China and India, Vietnam, uh, where they're actually manufacturing their goods and assembling their goods, uh, and th those are all contract manufacturer manufacturers. So that's a that's a very good example. If you ever bought an Apple product, you'll notice on the label it says "designed in Cupertino, California, made in China or made in Vietnam," uh, and that's because they're actually not physically making their own equipment, uh, and it's all pretty much made overseas. So when we're talking about the proportion of companies who use contract manufacturing, are we looking at a vast majority of companies who are based in the United States and then do their manufacturing overseas, whether that's China, Vietnam, et cetera, them using contract manufacturers themselves, or is it kind of a slim majority who are using that? I, you know, I would say it's probably about 50-50. Um, so lots of manufacturers have their own factories and manufacture their own goods. But many of them outsource, and that's particularly true in the electronics industry. 
So it's very common if you're you have a electronics product uh, to uh, manufacture that product at a at a contract manufacturer. So the contract manufacturer may be assembling products for a hundred companies, uh, and they aggregate the demand all across those companies, and then they buy in bulk, and then um, they're experts at manufacturing the product. Um, and that, as I mentioned, is particularly um, common in electronics, where uh, a contract manufacturer is really good at making electronic parts, and so um, they're making them for, for all kinds of companies. So it's not unusual for a company like Foxconn. I think we've all heard of Foxconn in, in China. Um, they're actually a Taiwanese company, but uh, most of their manufacturing is in, in China. Um, and so, you know, a company like Foxconn may be manufacturing for Apple and HP and Samsung and, you know, a whole host of electronics companies. Um, and so that that's the most common use. And then the other thing is startup companies. Um, for us here in Silicon Valley, there are thousands of them. And they may start, make a design a piece of hardware, and then it's outsourced um, to a, a contract manufacturer to actually manufacture the part. So it's very common, um, uh, you know, across the board. Uh, and so I would say, you know, you, you, the question was how how common is it? I would say probably 50% of the companies out there are doing some contract manufacturing of one type or another. Then, of course, we have to loop this into the reshoring conversation because that begs the question, how many of these companies are doing it out of necessity or out of the need to cut cost and to increase their margins versus how many of them are doing it because it makes business sense, Right. How does this relationship between contract manufacturing and reshoring look? And then how is it set to potentially develop as we see more companies bring things back in-house? Yeah, so you know, reshoring is, is kind of dependent on contract manufacturing in a lot of ways. So companies may want to reshore in some way or another, but they don't. They either don't have the funds or don't want to invest in a, a big site and set up manufacturing. So they reach out to contract manufacturers to do that on their behalf. Uh, so um, it's very closely tied to reshoring. I, I think, um, you know, when we think about reshoring, you would, I, I think, generally think, well, you're going to open a factory and start manufacturing your own goods. But it's more likely that you're going to uh, set up a relationship with a contract manufacturer and have them manufacture on your behalf. Now, let's talk about costs for a minute because you had mentioned that. So contract manufacturing um, may not be a cost savings per se, but in a company that's designing a product like Apple, for example, they're all focused on the design. Um, Google is another good example. Um, you know, they're making uh, Google phones, but they are not doing the manufacturing that's outsourced. So the companies are focused on designing a product or developing a product, and they don't necessarily want to be experts in manufacturing. And so they buy that service. They buy that service. So contract manufacturer, you know, operates in in that regard. And then also contract manufacturer, if they have contracts across multiple industries and companies, uh, they're going to buy certain components in bulk. So fasteners, for example, capacitors, wiring, those kind of things. Um, are probably in every product they're they're making, so they can buy in bulk for multiple uh, multiple projects that they're working on, multiple companies, 
and then resell those parts to the companies at a small markup. So they'd make some money there. Um, and they're able to buy at a, at a cheaper price. Uh, but overall, I think contract man manufacturing is likely to be slightly more expensive than it would be if you had your own factory. But there are so many business reasons why you would want to outsource that instead of having your own. So when we think about contract manufacturing, it's not just the idea of sourcing out to a company that's overseas, right? You could have that company who establishes oh, a yeah. factory in the United States, say if we're talking about U.S. companies, but that would still be contract manufacturing if you are, you know, say Apple producing phones here in the U.S. That would never happen. But if that were to happen, that would still be an example of contract manufacturing, right? Yeah, absolutely. And there's lots of contract manufacturers here in the U.S., um, and I, there's lots of regional ones and as well as local companies that might be doing some kind of assembly work for you. Um, and, you know, there's a crossover and overlap between contract manufacturing and 3PLs also. So, you know, listeners might be thinking, well, isn't that what 3PLs do? And then to some extent, that's true. So 3PLs uh, are often involved in some kind of final assembly or not, you know, not just product chipping them but actually uh, doing some kind of processing um, for example you might uh, have a contract manufacturer that puts a cable in a box uh, that is appropriate for the US market and then another cable in a different box for uh, company for uh, sales to Europe the European market which requires a different kind of cable so you know those kind of things so 3pl may be doing some finishing and um, the order fulfillment side, the contract manufacturer is usually doing more of the manufacturing process, a little bit uh, a more sophisticated kind of manufacturing. Uh, but there is definitely some overlap, in, and you see that from time to time also. So let's talk a little bit about the difference between an EMS and a contract manufacturer. Where do those differences lie, and how should companies go about deciding which one they want to use? Yeah, so an EMS is an electronics manufacturer. Uh, it's EMS is electronics manufacturing services. Um, and those are mostly for, for electronics goods. And they're, they're specialized because electronics requires certain things that you wouldn't find in other industries. So um, in electronics, you have a lot of um, testing and circuitry, and sometimes they make, they're making circuit boards and uh, a lot of things that are just not found in other kind of manufacturing environments. So EMSs are specialized in electronics. And then contract manufacturing is the broader term that includes um, a kind of EMS and many other kinds of manufacturing. So there's uh, some crossover there and some just definitions in terms of what they're doing. Um, and, I, you know, I think um, there are reasons to be controlling those contract manufacturing, having a solid oversight, making sure you're checking on them, that you show up and look at their manufacturing sites, uh, whether it's in the U.S. or around the world. Um, a lot of these big uh, contract manufacturers um, like uh, Jable and uh, Sanmina SEI, these are the big guys they have manufacturing facilities all over the world. So not only in Asia, China, maybe Malaysia, um, Mexico, uh, you know, maybe Eastern Europe. So these are big companies that may offer their kind of services worldwide. And then there are others, as I mentioned, that are more localized. So 
you might have a, a small contract manufacturer existing anywhere in, in the world, and particularly in the U.S., that can help the smaller companies with their manufacturing projects. So that decision-making process of, um, am I going to ally myself with a contract manufacturer or not can be kind of a difficult one. What are some of those things that you mentioned to look out for when you're thinking about dealing with a contract manufacturer? You mentioned site visits and things like that, but is there anything else that people should really uh, keep an eye out for? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think, you know, as I mentioned, I get involved in a lot of these lawsuits that involve contract manufacturers. And uh, by far, the biggest uh, issue is uh, is inventory control and whether or not a contract manufacturer was actually authorized to go ahead and buy a product on, on your behalf uh, for manufacturing. So the first piece that's just critical is uh, giving the contract manufacturer a, a forecast in writing uh, and telling them this is what we want you to plan for or not. So in some cases, um, some, some companies will say to the contract manufacturer, we think we're going to need 500, but we're not going to give you a forecast until you know, later, three weeks from now or a month from now. Um, and so the contract manufacturer is kind of caught between a rock and a hard spot because if they're trying to meet a schedule, they have long lead items, they need to assemble kits to produce your product. Um, and if you haven't given them the go to buy products to forecast, then they're, they're taking a risk and going out there and buying them without that, that written authorization. So the first thing to remember is when you're working with a contract manufacturer, you know what the forecast is going to be, what you intend to buy, to put that in the contract manufacturer so they can keep that on hand. And we'll use it as a, a trigger for buying particularly long, long lead items. So let's say, for example, you want to produce those thousand parts uh, and have them available at the end of October. Uh, and there are uh, you know, 20 items in, in your raw materials. So you might have a hundred raw materials and 20 of those are long lead items, meaning that you have to buy them fairly, uh, fairly well in advance. Uh, and in order to, uh, to have them on site on time when you're ready to do the manufacturing. So the contract manufacturer, if they don't have a forecast, they don't really have authority to go ahead and buy those products. And so um, you, you need to lock it down in terms of in writing, put it in writing to them. This is what we are forecasting, what we intend to buy. Uh, and, then, um, and then that allows the contract manager, manufacturer to buy goods in advance so they can meet your production schedule. Uh, so there's, you know, things like that to watch out for. And then the other thing that I emphasize always when you're dealing in uh, in any kind of global manufacturing, whether uh, whether it's, you know, overseas or even domestic manufacturing here in the U.S., you must oversee your supply chain. So you need to be there, look at the production of your products, um, you know, make sure that you're communicating well, that you're not left in the dark, that you're not going, you know, two or three months without talking to the contract manufacturer. You need to be actively controlling what's happening um, when you outsource like that. Mm -hmm. Thought to think about. You mentioned a little bit of some 
controversy and some things that might be happening with contract manufacturing in a certain region of China. Can you walk us through what's going on there and how that relates to the contract manufacturing scene? Yeah. So a lot of people have heard about the Uyghurs, um, which are an ethnic group in the far western part of China um, that are um, subject to a lot of policies by the Chinese government. And uh, what what's happened is uh, they're very different and don't necessarily uh, haven't necessarily adopted all the Chinese uh, ways of doing business and so forth. So the Chinese are sort of re-educating them uh, and bringing those the Uyghurs, uh, the Uyghur population, into sort of concentration camps where they're supposed to be re-educated. One of the things that happens in these concentration camps is that they are forced labor. So it's a slave labor, essentially. Uh, and they're forced to work in contract manufacturing situations, either in these far western provinces or they're bused to manufacturing sites throughout China. And as because they're, um, uh, you know, to, uh, slave labor kind of people. Uh, the cost is very low. So these factories in other parts of China um, and even in in the concentration camps want to use Uyghur labor because it's either very, very low cost or it's free. So so what's happened as a result, these are human rights violations, obviously. And uh, so what's happened is the rest of the world has discovered this, um, what's going on there. And um, has put lots of restrictions on Uyghur imports. In the U.S., we we've never allowed um, prison labor goods, so those produced by slavery or prison labor, into the U.S. We disallow that, and we have forever, as far back as I can remember. And uh, the laws say um, that for prison labor is forbidden um, on products in the U.S. So recently, we enacted uh, legislation to control any imports that were made by Uyghurs. So um, any imports coming from Zhejiang province, which is the far western province in China, into the U.S. are restricted um, and in most cases rejected. And then any place that Uyghurs are uh, forced into a labor situation anywhere in China for any product are also forbidden to come into the U.S. So just just imagine if you have a a, a product and you engage with a contract manufacturer in China and um, you go there to visit, you're uh, controlling, you're over, you're, uh, you have oversight of that factory you look around, you try to understand who's there and so forth. You really have no way of telling who's a Uyghur and who isn't. Uh, and so you're kind of in a bad situation because if you import products from that factory that has Uyghurs actually working there, you could be fined uh, for that import. You'd be held responsible for that import. So U.S. Customs finds out that um, your products were made with Uyghur labor um, you know, you're in trouble, right? So those products are not allowed into the U.S. and you could be subject to all kinds of fines and so forth. So this is a, this is a fairly compli- complicated issue um, where, where um, it's just, you know, it's, 
it's next to impossible to figure out if you have Uyghur labor or not, and you know what kind of chances are you taking. Uh, so the remedy for that is to actually, in your contract with your contract manufacturers, to make sure you specify if you're dealing in China that there is no Uyghur labor involved, um, and hopefully the the manufacturer will live up to that uh, that request to that contract um, component. Consequences for this to finish this out, Rosemary. This is just for looking at fines, or is it possibly possible that manufacturers could be shut down if they're using this type of labor? Yeah, well, you know, China doesn't necessarily agree with our approach. Um, so, on the U.S. side, if you're importing products that have Uyghur labor, yes, you could be fined, um, even if you don't know. Uh, so. You know, that's something to keep in mind and another good reason why you need to have very hands-on oversight of what's happening at the factory. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, they're, first of all, those products are disallowed into the U.S. You, you're not going to be able to import them. And then you may be fined for attempting to import uh, products with Uyghur labor. So, you know, that's, a, that's an issue. Well, it's an interesting thing for more folks to have to consider. And I think that's a good stopping point for our episode today. Thank you for being here as always, Rosemary. If folks want to check out more about the Reassuring Institute, where can they go to do that? Yeah, we, we publish all of our uh, surveys and all of our case studies and all of our statistics. Everything is on our website at www.reassuringinstitute.org. Uh, and there's contact information there if you want to reach out, or you can uh, email me at rcoats at reassuringinstitute.org. All right, Rosemary, thank you for being here, and thank you guys for tuning in. You can catch Rethink Reassuring right here on FreightWaves TV on Tuesday afternoons at 2.30 Eastern Time. You can find our episodes up on our FreightWaves YouTube channel as well. That's just youtube.com forward slash FreightWaves. Thank you for tuning in, and we will see you all next week. Mm-hmm.